Praise the Lord for his word and praise the brother for serving us in the reading of his word. Amen. 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 Let me offer a word of prayer. Father, we renew in prayer what we just sang in our hearts. That you would speak to us from your holy word. Holy Spirit, we pray, guide us into all truth and wisdom. Protect us from error. Seal us, O Lord, we pray in faith. Keep us until the day of redemption. Grant, O Lord, that we would think well about the sacrifice that you require, the sacrifice that you made, and the life that you offer. Speak to us, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take care of a, a quick piece of personal business real quick. Oh, before that, uh, if anyone needs a Bible, if you raise your hands, we have ushers who would be happy to provide you a copy of God's Word uh, to follow along with us. You know, just keep your hands up. We'll distribute those. And after the service, uh, if you have a Bible at home, you don't need a copy of the Bible. You can return it at the table out back. If you don't have a copy of the Bible that's your own, that's our gift to you. You have one now. Amen. So I'm going to take a, a, a quick sort of personal um, matter of business real quick. Babe, uh, I wrote this introduction on Thursday morning before you texted me on Friday. Okay? All right? Now you'll know what this is about. Americans love a good sale. <laughs> a good sale will drive some people crazy. My wife found a sale on Friday. I just wanted her to know that this introduction was written on Thursday. It was a word from the Lord. Y'all, y'all quiet this morning. Okay, I'm going to have a good time by myself. Okay, anyway, nowadays, some people spend a lot of energy getting ready for sales, like after Christmas sales. They prepare more for the sale after Christmas than they prepare to celebrate Jesus at Christmas. People actually prepare for the sale like they're going on a hunt, don't they? They rise early. They map out their favorite spots. They make their list of things they're going to get. And sometimes they even camp out before the doors of the store open. It's amazing to me, but somehow those words, it was on sale, justifies almost every purchase. Many people, I'm going to help somebody, many people <laughs> really love also that, that one day only sale. Those words tempt people to forget all of their budgeting, all of their planning, all of their rationality, because it's only one day I got to get it. There's something attractive about the promise of deep discounts scooped up by the savvy shopper. See, they've even given you a, a name to make you feel good about yourself, the savvy shopper. Right. I'll be honest, as you can tell, I really don't understand sales. I ain't falling for the idea that I saved money by spending money. I ain't sure how that worked. That's like some Wall Street witchcraft, right? How do I save money if money left my pocket? That seems like to me I'm hustling backwards, right? And it doesn't matter for me if it was a, quote, sale. For me, it's only a good sale if I get the total hookup, right? If I get it and someone else pays the cost. See, then we can talk. And in our text this morning, God has a one-day-only sale on forgiveness. Now, here's the thing. When, when God has a fire sale on forgiveness, he doesn't charge us. God pays the full price for what we get on that day. This day in Leviticus chapter 6 is the holiest day on the calendar in Israel. It is Yom Kippur, the Hebrew word for the Day of Atonement. It's a special day that, as verses 29 and 34 point out, is meant to be observed every year by all the Israelites with an appropriate religious solemnity, seriousness, focus. And this day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, reveals that Israel should prepare for a Savior. They should make ready. But when that one day only really comes, they should be ready to purchase, quote unquote, what God gives. 
When we look at Leviticus chapter 16, we can break this chapter up into four parts, five points here for the sermon, four parts in Leviticus 16, and then we'll jump over to Hebrews 9 and 10 to see the New Testament fulfillment. Uh, Israel needs to be prepared for the coming of their Savior. And that preparation in this text takes place in four ways. Number one, they need to be prepared by cleansing the priest. By cleansing the priest. Number two, they need to be prepared by cleansing the tabernacle. You see that in verses 11 to 19. By cleansing the tabernacle. Number three, they needed to prepare um, by, by offering clean sacrifices. By offering clean sacrifices, verses 20 to 28. And number four, they need to be prepared to do this forever. Prepared to do this forever, verses 29 to 34. And our fifth point is everything Israel prepared for, Christ actually provided. Everything Israel prepared for, Jesus provided. So, that first point. Israel needed to prepare by having a a clean priest. We see that in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 16. Uh, God's instructions for the Day of Atonement began with how to get the priest ready. Now, you recall, just for context, Leviticus is sort of the continuation of the book of Exodus. In some sense, the whole book is about preparing to meet regularly with God. It's about coming to God's cookout. It's about fellowship with God. It's about um, an, an intimate relationship with God and the holiness that is required in order to enjoy that fellowship. And so here we are climbing, as it were, in chapters 1 through 16, sort of a mountain of preparation. And then when we get in chapter 16, we're standing at the zenith. We're standing at the top of that mountain, and we're getting the, the longest, clearest view of what God is going to do for his people. What all of this preparation is meant to sort of climax in, to sort of culminate in, in the Day of Atonement. So the priests had to get ready in three ways. Number one, they needed to be sober-minded. They needed to prepare their minds. Verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 tells them to say, hey, look, think back to chapter 10, verses 1 to 3, where Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, offered to the Lord strange fire. They offered him an unauthorized uh, sacrifice, and for that, they lost their lives. And so the text begins with, a note of solemnity, a note of sobriety, a note note of sort of level-headedness. You cannot come to God any kind of way. One must prepare beginning with their minds. So they only had to come on the day that was appointed. Notice there in verse 2. They had to come to God in the way that God determined. They needed to prepare their minds with the knowledge of the holiness of God, or they could die right in the middle of worship. They need to be sober-minded. Number two, they need to be prepared by being supplied, by being supplied. That's what we see in verses three to five. They needed to come with the animals for sacrifices, the priest did, for their own sins in verse three. And in verse five, they need to bring animals for sacrifice for the sins of the people. Right in the middle, verse 4, they need to come dressed the way God instructed in the linen garments, the holy linen garments that were only meant to be worn into the holy place, into the presence of God on this day, the day of atonement. So they need to have in hand and be ready to worship God in the way that God wanted. Finally, notice, they needed to be structured in what they did. They need to be structured. See that there in verses 6 to 10. It's a summary of what Aaron was supposed to do to complete this preparation for uh, the Day of Atonement and serve it on that day. Essentially, he was to offer the bull uh, as a sin offering for himself and his household. He had to be cleaned before he could continue with the rest of the ministry. After that, he was to take two rams, notice, as a sin offering uh, for the people of Israel. And he was to cast lots, an ancient way of sort of deciding God's will, and an ancient way for God to direct his people. He was to cast lots to see which ram would be what some have called the scapegoat and which ram would be sacrificed. God would do the choosing. God would choose the offering that would please him. 
and the offering that would take away the sins of people. So in this way, the priest was to cleanse himself to perform his duties without dying. God was teaching them they needed a perfect representative. They needed a perfect mediator. They needed a perfect person who could stand between them and their sin and God in his holiness in order to reconcile God and sinners. In order to make atonement between God and sinners. That's the first thing. The second thing. Israel needed a clean tabernacle. You see that in verses 11 to 19. Notice again in the opening couple of verses at 11 and 12, Aaron atones for himself and his offering. The priest couldn't appear before God the way he wanted to. He had to appear before God cleansed uh, in the presence of God. And this sacrifice would allow him to enter into the tent ceremonially, ceremonially holy. But even the first thing he has to do when he gets in the tent is to offer this incense. He would burn these incense on the altar. And notice there how the incense is described as sort of coming up between him and God. God's glory dwelled over um, the mercy seat. That's the, his presence sort of in its, in its fullness, so to speak, in ancient Israel. And again, you can't come into his presence without some kind of covering. So this incense of praise is a kind of covering between Aaron, the priest, and his holy God. Notice also that once inside, Aaron atones for the holy place and the mercy seat. See that there in verses 15 and 16? Verse 14, he he tells us that, that Aaron took the blood of the sin offerings, both the blood of the bull and the ram, And he sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat seven times, seven representing a kind of completeness. And and those two offerings made atonement for the very place where God lived, for the holy place itself. In verses 16 and 17, he comes out of the holy place, and now he makes atonement. Um, for for the tent itself, for the tent of meeting, the tabernacle and all that's in it, its furnishings, etc. Until finally, verses 18 and 19, he comes a little bit further out to the altar now where the sacrifices would be made. And he does the same thing. He takes the, the blood of the, the bulls, of the goats, and he sprinkles it on the altar. He rubs it on the horns of the altar and sprinkles it at the altar. Now think about what's being said here. The holiest place in Israel, the very place where God lives, that place needed atonement. That place needed cleansing. And and we're not left guessing as to why. Notice in verse 16, the tabernacle needed atonement because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all of their sins. The problem was that the tent of meeting dwelled, notice in verse 16, with them in the midst of their uncleanness. We we spent the last couple of weeks talking about clean and unclean. That's the subject of chapters 11 to 15. It's interesting, isn't it? That interacting with unclean things or dwelling in the midst of unclean Israel actually made the holy things of God unclean. Their uncleanness and sin sullied God's house. It's a stunning picture of how corrupting sin is. Of of how sin and uncleanness can take even the purest things and make them dirty. So notice verse 19. These offerings had to be made to consecrate the tabernacle, the tent, from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. God was, again, setting himself apart in the midst of a set-apart people because even that set-apart people could not live up to the glory of his own holiness. They sullied his dwelling place. So it had to be rededicated to God. How bad our sin and uncleanness, if they defile the very place where God lives. So they had to prepare even the tabernacle 
to be acceptable for worship on the Day of Atonement because of sin. Here's the third thing. Israel needed to prepare clean sacrifices, actually multiple sacrifices. We see that in verses 20 to 21. Everything in verses 1 to 19 uh, is preparation for the making of the actual sacrifices in verses 20 to 28. And the Day of Atonement was a special day, again, with some special elements during the sacrifice. The major new thing here was the offering of the scapegoat, or your translation may say the goat to go to the wilderness, or the goat to go to Azazel. We see that in verses 20 to 22. Remember, in, in verse 8, God chose between the two goats. One goat would be offered in the regular manner of sacrifice, but the other goat would be the live goat, the scapegoat, who would take uh, off into the wilderness sort of free in that sense. With the scapegoat in verse 21, Aaron would lay his hands on the head of the goat. Then notice he would confess over the goat all the iniquities and transgressions and sins of Israel. That must have been a long prayer. A long prayer of confession, right? Iniquities refer to grossly immoral acts. We might use the word wickedness. So he would confess all the wickedness of the people as he laid hands on that goat. And, 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 and transgressions are just what they sound like. They, they sort of trans, across, transgressions. They're crossing the law, crossing the rule of God. So this is all the ways in which Israel specifically broke God's law, broke God's word. And so he would be confessing that too as he laid hands on the goat. And sins basically means missing the mark, right? So these are all the other ways in which Israel had, had fallen short of God's glory, fallen short of God's standard. And so the Bible here is using these three sort of overlapping related words for describing how full this confession was and, and how full and how wide-ranging their sins were. And so Aaron is laying hands on this goat pressing his hands on his goat, and as he's doing that praying, he is, as he were, pressing the sins of the people onto the head of this goat so that the goat becomes the one who carries their sins rather than the people. Nothing's left out. And once that laying on of hands was done, the goat, as I said, was led away into the wilderness by someone whose job it was to do that. And they would take the goat out into the wilderness and they would set the goat free. The scapegoat represented sins being laid on another who would carry those sins far away from the people. Reminds us, Dutness, of what the psalmist would later write in Psalm 103, verse 12, that God would remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. And every year, the Day of Atonement, God was giving them a picture of that in the scapegoat. He would be carried away into the wilderness, outside the camp, away from the city, bearing the sins of the people. But that's only one half of the, of the forgiveness, is the removal of sin in that way. There's another aspect here, and that's the goat that's actually sacrificed on the Day of Atonement. We see that in verses 23 to 28. Aaron would come out of the holy place. He would remove his holy garments that he wore in that place. He would bathe, put on his regular priestly clothes, and come out then to the tent of meeting, verses 23 and 24. That's where he made atonement for himself and for all the people. Then they took, took care of the offerings according to the law. The fat of the sin offering was burned on the altar. You remember from chapters 1 to 6, that's a pleasing aroma uh, to God. That is the fat portion which God chooses for himself. And the person who took the goat to the wilderness, he too would come back and, and bathe and change clothes and come back into the camp and participate with the rest of the people. And the flesh of the burnt offering, it, it too was carried outside the camp and burned in verse 27. And the priest who did that would have to do the same thing. He would have to bathe and change clothes and come back to the camp as well. I've been enjoying uh, these past couple of weeks, Essie and Taco have uh, come to join me for sermon prep on the first day as we were reading the text and reading the text. And, and Essie pointed out, she said, oh, there's a pattern here. There's purging sin and then washing. Purging, washing, purging, washing. You see it there? Verses 20 to 22, there's the purging of sin with the scapegoat. Verse 23, then there's the washing. Verse 25, there's the purging again of sin. 
with the offering. Then verse 26, there's a washing and coming back into the camp. Verse 27, the purging of sin. And verse 28, the washing. What's up with that pattern? Well, Israel needed multiple performances of this symbolic drama. They were being reminded that as often as they sinned, God would purge it. And as often as they would want to fellowship with God, they needed to be washed and cleansed and to come back into God's presence. And over and over again, this repetition is revealing a weakness in the system, isn't it? That this system is beautiful and powerful, but it's ceremony. It's not finally the removal of that sin or the cleansing finally of the conscience. A better sacrifice would be needed for that. So every year, they are seeing again and again the offerings, the washings, the offerings, the washings, reminding them of their constant need. This brings us to the fourth thing, that Israel needed to be prepared to do this forever. That's what we see in verses 29 and 24. God gives them instructions that they are to celebrate the Day of Atonement each year. Verse 29 sets the date for the seventh month and the tenth day. So it's fixed on the calendar. Mark it with red. Circle it. Everybody's eyes is pointing to this day as they live through the year, looking forward to that day when God will forgive them of all of their sins. And on that day, the people had responsibilities. Notice that they were to afflict themselves. That meant they were to humble themselves in contrition over their sins. This is a day that is in one sense joyous because of what they're anticipating in terms of God's forgiveness, but is also appropriately sober. So just as the priests are reminded in verses 1 and 2 to remember Nadab and Abihu, the people are instructed now in verses 29 to 34 to remember their sins and to humble themselves and to afflict themselves. Perhaps a New Testament parallel would be the Lord's Supper, where we instruct in the Lord's Supper to examine ourselves and to confess our sins at the table. They were to mourn the ugliness and destruction of their transgressions and to mourn how even the, the presence of God in his tabernacle were sullied or dirtied because of their sin. So they were to afflict themselves, to some perhaps even fast to prepare to come make this sacrifice. And then those, secondly, they were not to work. The Day of Atonement was a special Sabbath, according to verse 31. Right? So the day was to be free of work for both the native Israelite and the stranger who sojourns among you. Because it was a Sabbath, the day was dedicated to solemn rest. The rest was not to be superficial and common. It was to be solemn, which means it was to be serious and dignified. So Israel could rest in the presence of the Lord, but they, they weren't to rest at the beach. They weren't to rest at the movie theaters. They weren't to rest at the ball game. However much those recreations are, 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 are fine, that that's not the kind of rest that God had in mind for his people when they were coming to him to have their sins forgiven. So every year, the priests made atonement for the people, and the people were cleansed of their sin. On a special day, the community atoned for every sin of every person. That one special day, repeated every year, pointed symbolically to one real day when all the sins of all the people of the whole world would be atoned for. That's what the prophet Zechariah tells us later in Israel's history. In Zechariah 3, verse 9, Zechariah says this, For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, as a, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. That's what the Day of Atonement is pointing forward to. And beloved, that's what happens on Calvary's cross. That's what we were just celebrating last week in the celebration of a resurrection day. 
And that's what the New Testament writers understood uh, about this passage in Leviticus chapter 16. So as we think about the relevance of Leviticus chapter 16, let's think about it first of all in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 10. And as you, as you turn there, let me, let me remind you of what we've just been reading in Leviticus chapter 16. And in verses 1 to 10, we were reading a description of the priest's responsibility to make sacrifice for himself before sacrificing for the people, that he would have to do that year after year. And what we were seeing there was the revelation that the priesthood, even the priesthood at the very beginning in the Exodus, was going to be insufficient for the atonement that they really needed. And then we saw in verses 11 to 19 that that priest, that same priest, had to then make uh, sacrifices of atonement for the tabernacle itself, beginning with the mercy seat and the holy place, and then including the, the whole tent of meeting and the altar itself. And so the very tools that were used to make the sacrifices and the very place, the dwelling place of God itself, likewise was insufficient for the atonement that they needed. And so then we saw the sacrifices being made for the priest and for the people. And those sacrifices had it to be repeated, even on the Day of Atonement. There's this pattern of purge and wash, purge and wash, purge and wash. But the Day of Atonement itself will have to be repeated every year. Again, demonstrating that those sacrifices, though beautiful and powerful, were not actually accomplishing the atonement that was really needed. So when and where did that accomplishment happen? Look with me in the beginning of Leviticus chapter, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 9. And let's just consider as sort of divinely inspired commentary what, what the writer of Hebrews has said, really, with Leviticus chapter 16 and the whole sacrificial system in mind. That's what he says beginning in verses 1 to 5. Now even the first covenant, referring again back to the Old Testament, the Mosaic covenant, had regulations for worship. And an earthly place of holiness. What is that? That's the tabernacle, right? For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand, the table, and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. I, I love the writer of Hebrews. He just gave us a, a perfect picture of the Old Testament tabernacle, didn't he? And he just dropped down all these details. And he's like, but I ain't got time to spend on this right now. I can't go into this in detail right now. But he's putting us in the tabernacle of Leviticus 16. Right? Now notice what he says. He goes on. Uh, in his description here in verse 6. These preparations have thus been made. The priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. So in that first section of the tabernacle, the priests go in there every day regularly, making offerings as people would come to make offerings on the regular days of the year. But verse 7, but into the second section of the tabernacle, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, so now we're talking about the Day of Atonement, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates, y'all know the Holy Spirit was speaking in Leviticus 16? It's always speaking in the Word. It's the Spirit who gives us the Word and makes it alive, right? So by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Now that's a pregnant sentence. Here's what it means. That in Leviticus chapter 16, God the Holy Spirit was showing Israel and showing us, the church, that the way into God's presence was not yet really open to God's people. 
The fact that only one man could go into the holy place and only one time of year and only then offering sacrifices for himself while all the rest of the people were outside the tent of meeting was a symbolic illustration that the pathway into God's presence was not yet open. And it was also demonstrating that in all of those sacrifices, in all of those gifts, in all of those offerings offered repeatedly, that what we most need in order to enjoy a relationship with God, a clean conscience, a perfected conscience, we, we did not yet have. All we had was the reminder of our sin and the reminder of our need for a clean and a clear conscience. That was not yet provided for in the old covenant system. And so you can imagine the worshiper. Maybe you feel this way this morning who comes into the presence of God and comes into the presence of God's people, wanting to be free, wanting to enjoy God, wanting to enjoy his presence, but being constantly nagged by the reminder of their sin, by the reminder of their failings, by the reminder of their guilt. And in that system, in that time, there was no solution for the worship. Notice verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The writer in verse 11 says, but now I have good news. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has appeared. And he has appeared as our great high priest. We don't need those human priests of the Old Testament system. We don't need the pastor as priest in the New Testament church. We have a high priest greater than every human priest, Jesus Christ. Now, he has gone into a tent, but it's not the tent that was made with human hands. He has gone into heaven itself. And he has offered a sacrifice now, but it's not the sacrifice of bulls and goats. He took a sacrifice with him, but it was his own blood. And he shed his blood in that place before God. And notice at the end of verse 12, notice what he purchased, what he secured, an eternal redemption. Not a temporary redemption, not an annual redemption. Not a daily sacrifice for a daily uh, redemption, but an eternal, a forever buying back of the sinner from their sin and buying them back for God. He purchased it. He achieved it. He secured it by means of his own blood. Now notice, he does this contrast in verses 13 to 14 he argues from the lesser to the greater he says now if the blood of bulls and goats and a little little ash from the burning of a heifer a cow a bull if that could be sprinkled on a person's body and their body be considered cleansed now the greater how much more through the shedding or the sprinkling of the blood of Christ how much more Will that sacrifice purify our conscience from all the dead works so that we can actually enjoy serving the living God? Oh, this is good news, beloved. You missed your place to shout. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the shedding of his blood, accomplishes in reality something that was only pointed to figuratively in the Old Testament. That is, it accomplishes in reality the washing, the renewal, the cleansing of our conscience from all the dead works that nag us. 
In other words, if, if in thinking about Jesus and believing in Jesus and in preaching the gospel to ourselves, our minds are not washed so that our sins are erased, we ain't preaching it right yet. We're not holding on to it right yet. And we have to do that, beloved. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day because every day we are reminded by an accusing, lispy-tongued serpent that we have sinned, aren't we? And our consciences, being healthy, will, will also point out to us our sins, but God has provided for us in the blood of his Son something that is meant to speak smoothly to the conscience and put it at rest to give it peace so that we can serve the living God. So that now that the holy place is open to all, we can come into the very presence of God and not shrink back and not fear death and not fear condemnation. For now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The old is gone and new has come. We are meant to enjoy that, beloved. This is the point I'm pressing here pastorally. We are meant to enjoy that. So I know that in the Christian mind, there is often sometimes this fatigue with our sins, and one of two things happen. We become the condemning voice against ourselves, mad at ourselves. We did it again. We're struggling. We failed again. We're so aware of our failings that we need to hear this text. His blood has cleansed our conscience of dead works so that we can serve the living God. Is that you this morning? Christian? Is that you so aware of your sin? So aware of your failings? so forgetful of the blood. Take heart. Take heart. That blood still cleanses. It still washes. It still speaks for you. It still intercedes. Allow it to purify again and again. We sing it all the time. It shall never lose it's power. That's the argument the writer of Hebrews is making here in chapter 9, but it doesn't stop there. Jump down to chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. He wants us to understand Leviticus 16 in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And he wants us to understand what we have in Jesus because of what he's done for us. So he says in Leviticus 10, beginning in verse 1, for since the law has but a shadow of the things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. I mean, you just get tired as you read verse 1, don't you? Right? Notice what he says now. The, the law has but a shadow. It's not the body. It's not the substance. It's not the reality. It's just a shadow. And this is why Paul can say in Galatians and the writer of Hebrews can say, look, don't go back to the shadow. Don't go back to the law. That's not the thing. That's not the it. The it is Jesus, right? The law only has a shadow of the good things to come. It's not the true realities. And so that's why the law can never, by those same sacrifices, continually offered every year. Notice how many times he's saying repetition. Same sacrifices, continually offered every year. We're meant to feel a little tired when we get to that comma. Those things cannot make perfect those who draw near to the shadow. Beloved, you've never walked up to a shadow and hugged a shadow, have you? As a kid, I used to like to try and shadow box. You see that on cartoons? The cartoon characters be shadow boxing, and pretty soon the shadow knocked the dude out, right? You can never hit your shadow. You, ne you never grab the thing. You never put your hands on it. That's the law. But Christ has a body. Christ has been in flesh. Christ is the reality. Him you can hold. Him you can hug. More than that, he hugs back. He holds back. So he says that the law won't do this. Otherwise, notice verse 2, 
would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. Hey, listen, if the law was working, they don't have to do it once. Because then their conscience would be cleansed and wouldn't be worried about their sins. But that's not the case. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Jump down to verse 11 for me. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. See, the priest is insufficient. The sacrifices are insufficient. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. It's a beautiful picture that Jesus' work is done. He offered himself once, and then he sat down. He sat down. And more than sitting down, he's waiting to kick his feet up to put his feet on the footstool, till all of his enemies shall be brought beneath his feet. All of his enemies, from, from Satan, all of his enemies, or those who oppose the gospel, all of his enemies, including death itself. Nothing but a footrest for our sovereign God. His work is done. Not to be added to, not to be taken away from. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. That's me and you, Christian. In that one sacrifice, he not only purifies the conscience, but he is perfected the sanctified. He is all the perfection we will ever need to stand in God's presence. He is all the righteousness we will ever need. He is all the holiness we will ever need. He is all the wisdom we will ever need. He is all the perfection we will ever need. He's all the glory we will ever need. Everything we will ever need is all in him. Which is why we are free to enjoy God, to love him as he intends. To come to him in truth, not by symbol, but in substance. And to know this real and everlasting God. That's what Leviticus chapter 16 about. That's what Zechariah was prophesying about in Zechariah 3. On a single day when God will take away all the sins of the land, all the sins of the people, all the sins of the world. On that day when Christ was given on the cross, he died for the sins of the whole world. So that now anyone who believes in him would not perish, would not be judged, would not have to go on in a conscience that condemns them. But anyone who believes in Christ as the sacrifice that takes away their sins, as the risen Lord who rules their life, anyone who believes in him shall have their consciences clean, their sins wiped away, and shall forever be reconciled to God and enjoy him forever. And that's what's on offer to you this morning if you're not yet a Christian. A way to come to God. Sins completely forgiven. Righteously, righteousness perfectly given to you. And enjoy God forever. It's a one day only sale. And this is the day, beloved. This is the day of your salvation. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, please do not harden your hearts the way Israel did in the wilderness. Don't, don't step back in unbelief. Don't, don't let your mind run to the cares of Monday morning and things that are due at work. Don't, don't let your mind run to things that have to be cooked this afternoon after church. No, no, no. Today is the day of salvation. Today, forgiveness is offered to you not at a deep discount, but free. Forgiveness is offered to you not for a little bit less than what you would have paid for it, but entirely free because Christ paid for it. Because Christ died in your place and was raised in your place so that you might live forever by trusting in him. Love, if you're hearing you're not a Christian, put your faith in Jesus. Confess your sins. Confess that Jesus is the sacrifice that pays the penalty for your sin. Confess to God a guilty conscience. 
God, I am aware that I am wrong. And honestly, God, I've been trying to hide that fact from everybody else and from myself. But this morning, I admit it. I am wrong. I am a sinner. I have rebelled against your word. I I am guilty of wickedness and transgression and sin. But Lord, you said on that day, you would remove all of that from me and give me eternal life. I'm putting my faith in you, Jesus, to do exactly what you said. Here's God's promise. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You do that this morning. You will be redeemed. You will be saved. You will be rescued from God's judgment. And you will be given eternal life. Put your faith and your hope in him this morning. If you're not yet a Christian, that's the best thing you can do for your own soul in response to God's word. Now, Christian, we should also think about how we apply these things now. So Israel had instructions for their day. It was preparation pointing forward to Christ, and Christ has fulfilled all that symbolically and and in teaching Leviticus 16 um, pointed them to. Now we need to bring that over to our day and and sort of put it in our laps. How do we take this away? What practical difference day-to-day does this make? Let me give you five applications right from Hebrews chapter 10. Five applications. Number one, this means we should go to God often. See that there in Hebrews 10, verse 19? Therefore, right, so everything that's following here is based on what he's been telling us, been teaching us about Jesus and his sacrifice. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, we should have confidence. Notice this, we should have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. So I, I, think, I take that to mean practically that as Christians, whatever is going on in our lives, we should keep running to God. The way is open. The curtain has been torn in two, has been torn back. Now we have confidence because of his blood, or at least we should. We, we should go into God's presence, again, not trembling, not, not shrinking back, not fearful, not, not listening to a voice that says, I'm not sure this works. No, we should go into the presence of God fully assured, fully confident. God will receive me. God has received me because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We should go in God's presence shouting, I'm home. I'm back. We should go into God's presence knowing we belong there. We belong there. That's where he wants us. That's why he shed his blood is to open the way so that we can come back to where we belong. Going to God's presence isn't just duty, beloved. That's it. I got to do quiet time. Because I do quiet time. I don't want to sleep in 10 more minutes, but I'm going to get on up anyway. You know, I'm going to pray. I'm going to check the boxes. (laughs) If that's how we're thinking, we're not home yet. We're not home yet. Text says, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, not the holy places made by hand, the actual holy places where God really lives, not symbolically. But heaven itself, that's our home. We should go often. Go often to God, beloved. Crucify the flesh. Crucify the world with its destruction, its its, its distractions. Turn and stand against the devil. Go often into God's presence. Go home. Second application. Be sure of your salvation. Be sure of your salvation. See that there in verses 21 and 22? And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us now draw near, how? With a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. How wonderful is this? We have a great priest, the the great high priest, the one priest that all the other priests are kind of pointing to. 
That's our priest. That's the one who stands in the tabernacle making offerings for us. That's the one who has once and for all conquered our sin and turned away God's judgment. That's the priest that we have because he is our priest. We come near. And we don't, we don't, again, notice, we don't come near afraid, but we come near not with falsity, but with a true heart. Not doubting, but in full assurance of faith. Why? Why? Well, because we remind ourselves our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. All the cleansing that's symbolized in the Old Testament is actually accomplished in Jesus. Plain talk. If you're a Christian, you're clean. You're clean. You're clean. You're clean. Isn't it a miracle? Isn't it a miracle? I mean, we know our corruptions, right? And we know that if we were still Old Testament Jews, we would be making all these sacrifices to cleanse all this defilement. Even with a runny nose, okay, I got to go make a sacrifice. You know, then you sin, I got to go make a sacrifice. We would never be cleansed in that system. But here, the word of God tells you, Christian, you are clean. Clean. So clean, in fact, that the end of that verse did you see that? Points to your inside and your outside. Your heart sprinkled and your body washed because of the blood of Christ, the great high priest who's there interceding for you. Walk into God's presence like you're clean because of Jesus. Be sure that you're clean and you're saved. Notice now, again, because of Jesus. Not because of you, not because of me, not because of what we've done, but because of who he is and what he has done. Live clean. Live already clean. Be sure because of Jesus. Number three. And if, you, and if you don't have, let me just say, if you don't have that assurance, I just offer you two, two practical things to do. Number one, look away from yourself to Jesus. And number two, pray and ask God to give you that assurance based on who Jesus is. Just keep looking away from yourself and looking to Jesus and keep asking God to give you that full assurance of faith. He wants you to know. Number three, applications for Christians. Continue in the faith. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I love all the instructions in these verses because it keeps rooting the application in who God is and what God has done. Right? So he says, hold fast, hold fast your profession, hold fast your confession of our hope. What's our hope? Our hope is that we're escaping this perishing world. We are escaping the judgment of God against this world, and we are accepted with God unto eternal life. Our hope is there's a kingdom waiting on us, which Christ said he would prepare for us and come again and receive us into. Our hope is the coming glory of God, which when we see it, we will be transformed into that very glory. Our hope is the resurrection that we just celebrated, that we too will be raised to life with Christ, never to die again. You profess that. Hold on to it. Hold on to it. Don't let nobody pull that out your hand. Don't you loosen your grip. Hold on to your hope, the confidence that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, that the things that he promised us are actually ours, are actually coming. Your hand gets sweaty? Real quick, get back on the crib. You get a little tired? Because clenching your fists will weaken your biceps after a while? Find a brother and sister and say, hold this together with me. Help me with my grip. 
come on, we need to hold fast. We need to hold tight to this confidence, to this hope that we have, which Jesus has given us. Make it a group project. But continue in the faith. Why? Verse 23, for he who promises faithful. He's faithful. He doesn't lie. God is not a man that he should lie. He's not changing his mind about things. All his promises, the Bible says, are what? Yes and amen in Christ Jesus. All God's promises are fulfilled, are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And even when we are faithless, he is still That's who God is. He's faithful, beloved. He has promised you some things that are yours in Christ. Don't give them up. Don't turn away. Don't forget about them. And most of all, don't forget about him and his character. He's faithful, beloved. He's faithful even until the end. Number four, beloved, we got to stir each other up. We got to stir each other up. Notice verse 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day, not of atonement, but the day of judgment is coming. The day of Christ's return is coming. It's on God's calendar. We don't know what day and time. Don't let nobody tell you that lie either. They know what day and time he's coming. No man knows, but he is coming. And he is coming quickly. And every eye will see him. And as that day comes, here's the other thing the Bible tells us, the world will wax worse and worse. It'll get harder and harder for the saints of God. Sin will run amok. The world will get worse and worse. So we have to stir each other up to love and good deeds. And every day, we've got to encourage each other, beloved. And, and we should not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. How are we going to stir each other up if we can't get together? How are we going to build each other up if we can't worship together? How are we going to love one another if we're not going to spend time together? And this is the least of the time we should be spending together. Sunday morning as God's people assembled to worship him. Everybody ought to be here. But this is the, this is the beginning. <laughs> right? You, you realize the Christian life is meant to be lived all your life, not just Sunday from 10 to 12. This is where we should have a unique experience of all of God's people meeting together with our Christ, with our Savior. And and out of this experience, we should gather some fuel for everyday money, the Saturday experience of also encouraging each other up and building each other up. It's a conspiracy we're meant to be a part of. Quit quit listening to all the other conspiracy theories and start listening to this one. Let us stir each other up as the day draws near. Number five, finally, say this and we'll be done to Christians. Stop sinning. I don't imagine that needs some commentary, but let me give it to you anyway. Verses 26 to 31. Look what God said. Now remember what was said earlier, that his sacrifice was for unintentional sin. And you remember that in the Levitical priesthood system, uh, Leviticus chapters 4 and 5, you want to go back and read that again, all the sacrifices are for unintentional sin. There is no sacrifice in the Old Testament for intentional sin. Right? So that kind of hardened rebellion has no sacrifice. So here's what he says in verse 26 to 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately, right, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, So somebody gets the gospel, the knowledge of the truth, that Jesus is the Son of God, crucified for our sins, raised from the grave three days later, ascended into heaven, coming again to gather his bride and to consummate his kingdom and to renew the universe. You get that truth and you go, eh, I'm going to go ahead deliberately in sin. Sinning repeatedly, a pattern of sin, a habit of sin in rebellion against the truth. See what he says there. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Instead, verse 27, but a fearful expectation of judgment and of a fury of fire that would consume the adversary. (laughs) He just said to Christians, go to God often. That's your home. Go, Go to God with a clean heart, a clean conscience. 
Go to God, sure, holding fast to your hope, right? He just said, hey, you are welcomed abundantly into the presence of God. But now we come down to verse 26, 27. But now if, if, if you claim to be Christ and you deliberately continue in the pattern and the habit of sin, resisting the truth that you say you believe, there's no sacrifice for that. The only thing that's left is not acceptance, not home, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fire that consumes God's adversary. God is not mocked. And he is not fooled. And his holiness is not a gullible holiness. He sees all and he knows all. And he's serious about the holiness of his people. Verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. He said, listen, if you're an Old Testament Jew, if you're an Old Testament Israelite, and, and you sin and, and set aside the law of Moses, it's judgment with that, without mercy. Again, he argues from the lesser to the greater again. Verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Like if you think it's bad under Moses and the law, you cannot imagine what it means to trample, look at that, that image, to trample the Son of God underfoot and to outrage the spirit of grace, and to profane the blood of the covenant, to take it from his holy place, and to take it over here to this unclean lifestyle of deliberately sinning. Not only is there no sacrifice for that, you cannot imagine the judgment for that. For if they were judged without mercy with two or three witnesses under the Mosaic covenant, after God has sent his son to die for you, and to create a new covenant? He doesn't even tell us how bad it is. He just reminds us of who God is in verses 30 and 31. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He writes that to Christians. And he offers it not as a threat to take away the promises of God in verses 19 to 25 or verses 1 to 25. He doesn't offer it that way. He's just reminding us of this, this sober truth that our God is holy and his people are meant to be holy. That the Day of Atonement purchases our holiness Completely. And we dare not, we dare not profane it any more than Nadab and Abihu should have offered strange fire. We have a holy God. And that's reason enough for us to war against sin. To war against sin. But we also have so many other reasons as well. He's made a home for you. He wants you to come there confidently. Come there sure of your salvation. And come there with some other people holding fast to the confidence that we have. Let's fight our sin together like holy people who have a holy God and all the help of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we give you praise and thanks for what you have done for us in Jesus, your son. For you have done far more for us than we could, we could ever imagine. And the stuff that we know, we are so often forgetting. Help us, O oh Lord, to count the blessings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to take note of what you have done for us in him. 
so that we do not come to you like people whose consciences are not clean, so that we don't come to you as people full of doubt and insecurity, so that we don't live this life forgetful of the profession and the confidence that we have made. No, Lord, help us to think long. Help us to think hard. Help us to think often. Help us to think joyfully about Jesus, our Savior, and what he has done for us. What he's done for us personally, what he's done for us collectively, how he has offered himself once and for all, how he has offered not the blood of bulls and goats, but his own blood, how he has gone not into a tabernacle made with hands, but into the true tabernacle, into heaven itself, and made himself an offering for us, and thereby has cleansed us, thereby has perfected us and sanctified us by his blood, thereby has opened up the Holy of Holies to us and made us a kingdom of priests. Thank you for the full confidence that we have in your presence because of Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Make him more dear to us, O oh Lord, we pray. Help us to cling to him more tightly, we pray. Help us to lock arms together as a family, we pray, so that we might receive the promised inheritance. So we might stumble on our race to glory. But that we would, we would finish the race, finish strong, and that we would run it with great joy. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.